Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion, and this is Foundation, the official podcast from Apple TV+. Joining me again is David S. Goyer, showrunner and executive producer. Hello, David. Hello. We're going to get into Episode 7, Mysteries and Martyrs. Once again, spoilers, folks. So if you haven't watched it yet, please do that first, then come back. Foundation, the official podcast, is your guide to the galaxy from Trantor to Terminus to Anacreon to the Maiden. Space is a big place, and we aim to make it smaller and brighter and add some context to everything you see on the show. Quick recap, Salvor finally finds out what Farrah's plan is, and spoiler, it's to destroy the Empire. We get to see more stuff with Teenage Dawn as he is realizing the differences with him and also a burgeoning relationship going on here with Azura. Day announces he's going on a pilgrimage, and we get into the big questions of religion, free will, and power. Uh, let's start with the Invictus and this grand space adventure. We get to see this ghost ship, the Invictus. It uh, jumps in and out of locations. It's a, a flying Dutchman in space. The, the ship is in the books. Um, quite different here. Tell us about the Invictus. And it is. there's just something so fascinating about this old tech that is also so much more advanced than anything that we well, can comprehend. Well, that we know today, yeah. right. Crown jewel of Ampaturulian's fleet. You know of her? They say in her day, the Invictus was the most powerful weapons platform the Empire had ever built. A world killer. There is a, uh, an old Imperial warship in the books that becomes a plot point. Right. Um, and so this was our iteration on that. Uh, I liked the idea of the Anacreans and the Foundation getting their hands on a piece of old imperial tech because the empire has a monopoly on jump technology, but they find this ancient ship that, that when we come into the story is 700 years old, that was before even the genetic dynasty that potentially has the capability of jumping um, also without the need of spacers. And so it's kind of a game changer because it's also this massive weapons platform. It's something, I think we said it originally I wanted it to be five miles wide, but I think, I think, <laughs> I think it's something like a kilometer and a half wide, but that's big. That's, that's huge. a big, that's, yeah. a, that's a big ship. And, and it's, and it's weapons and jump drives are still active. Right. Wow. Um, Lewis says, notes something really fascinating about the navigation of this craft, which was that, you know, before spacers, you wouldn't plot it out in quite the scientific way. You just kind of have to wish right. that you would arrive at a place. It's really fascinating. Well, I I think of science and religion as being on this on this scale, right? And what we know of is classical science, you know, at the top of it and sort of classical religion at the top of it. And if 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 religion, Judeo-Christian religion keeps going more in an Eastern way, you know, into like Zen Buddhism or Taoism or something like that. Um, and, and, and you think of this sort of model like a clock and it gets down to where six o'clock is. And then you think of sort of classical science and then you get into particle physics and whatnot going around the right side. They sort of meet at number six, like there's this point where where religion and science become indistinguishable from one another. Mm-hmm. And and the little that I know of quantum mechanics is just so mind-blowing in that way, the idea yeah. that a particle can exist in more than one space at a time or that the actions 
uh, just the act of observing, observing something can alter the outcome or that the Schrodinger's cat, just all, it's all one of the yeah, same yeah. thing, you know, is that the idea that, that you could have an intention in your mind to want a certain result and that it, that intention could affect the result is just mind boggling to me. Or even the notion of time dilation just blows my mind, right? The fact that the faster you yeah, go, right, it, it, it alters, you know, the your, relative flow of time, the relative flow of time, which right. is just crazy. And this has been, again, not to get too violent, but they proved this like in like 1918. Like yeah, Einstein proved yeah. that it happened. They, because, taken a, like a very, yeah. you know, um, like an atomic clock, yeah. like up into the space station, and that the time flows differently. Or if you approach the speed of light, I mean, I just <laughs> all this stuff blows my mind. Uh, and on top of this, you know, here is this extremely advanced warship, even though it again is centuries old, uh, that is the embodiment of all these kind of like high-minded and super ethereal ideas, but it is extremely powerful, destructively powerful. And we understand now that it is Pharaoh's instrument of revenge. All of Tranto will be nothing but a heap of poisonous ash, all its evils rendered silent underneath it. We will deliver that justice to them, Warden. We will die to bring the Empire to its knees. She's thinking... Empire bombed my planet. Right. I found this thing. I'm going to fix it. And I'm going to literally jump it into the heart of Trantor, which will obviously destroy the entire planet and the seat of the empire. It would be like if someone set an atomic bomb off in Washington, D.C. or something like that and just took the entire thing out. It's hard to imagine America yeah. continuing. And and that's, that's her goal. Um, th- this is a really thrilling, fun, adventure scene, all the zero-G stuff. How did you talk, how did you shoot this? Well, when I first wrote this scene, everyone at Skydance, David Ellison is a big uh, space geek. They were like, this scene's awesome, but it's irresponsible because it's so expensive. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they, were, they were mad at me that I wrote it. And uh, uh, particularly because David Ellison really liked it. And... <laughs> and and they were just worried. And, and I, I, I think there's cool stuff in there. I mean, I love the design of the Invictus, which in this case, I literally designed on a napkin. That doesn't, oh, wow. you, you hear that story, but we were talking about different designs for this but, ship. What was your inspiration for it? Well, we already had this, this what we call the donut hole in the Imperial ships. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I described those ships as, Wanting, I wanted them to look like knife blades because the Empire is aggressive and the Imperial ships I wanted to look like knife blades. And so we'd already come up with this idea that when the Imperial ships jump, they create the singularity in this sort of donut hole. And so I thought, well, if the Invictus is just this big, giant jump ship, then it should only be donut hole. And so um, we were just kicking around things. And one day in Ireland, I just drew those three concentric rings on a napkin and said this make this uh the zero g that was that cables was that wire stuff so the zero g was yeah that was all wire work and um a combination of of um 
Leah, the actress, being on cables, and then also her stunt double being on cables, and um, the also complicated by the the spacesuits are very hard to design, and we would run into all sorts of problems with the spacesuits. The biggest problem with the spacesuits was it took a while to get them on, mm. and they also had they had a coolant system in them because the actors would overheat, and they also had a microphone system in them because we realized quickly the first time we tried to shoot something <laughs> yeah. that when you put those helmets on, the actors couldn't hear what the director or anyone else was saying. So they were wired for sound. They had a coolant system in them. They had lights on them because we also realized that, especially if you're going into like a dark haunted house, you know, uh, spaceship, it would be good to have lights on them. And so they were heavy because because each of their suits had all this gack. They had fan, you know, powered fans yeah. and lights and all of this stuff. And then, of course, we would tell all the actors, make sure you go to the bathroom, <laughs> right, before you get in the yeah. suit. And and then I don't know, maybe we had for the start of this nine actors in these things. And it was like dealing with my kids, like make sure you go to the bathroom <laughs> before we get in the car to drive to wherever. And we would just say, the second ADs that were wrangling the actors, like, make sure everyone goes, yes, yes, we've gone to the bathroom, we've gone to the bathroom. And inevitably, someone, usually Kubra, who plays Farah, (laughs) would be, we would shoot for like 20 minutes and say, I need to go to the bathroom. And, And that was like, oh my God, because that meant 20 minutes of taking off all the layers of stuff and then going to the bathroom and then putting it all back on. And then what would happen sometimes is in the intervening period, the other actors that were waiting would overheat. Right. And so then they would need to take off their helmets. And then it was just this, it looks cool. It looks really, really cool. But it was also (laughs) just like, oh my God. There were so many times on the show when I was just like, what have I done? Why did I Why did I do that? Why didn't I just cut and they're already there on the Invictus? This is a dumb question, maybe. But as someone who does a lot of streaming stuff, um, you know, with lights and things at home uh, and occasionally will wear glasses or how did you not get the front of the helmets, the face mask the, of the helmets to like reflect other light? Like, Oh, how did... oh dude, we did. I mean, <laughs> we, we, so two things. It's constant push-pull, right? I would say about half the scenes we filmed without a faceplate. And we digitally put the faceplate in. Mm. And the other half of the scene, we filmed with a faceplate and we would see crew reflected and we would see lights reflected. (laughs) And so we had to paint out all sorts of crap. And that was another pain in the ass that we're like... Because then, because you run the numbers and you say, like, what if we shoot the whole scene with no faceplates and all the faceplates are digital? Is that cheaper than painting out mm-hmm. um, all of the reflections? So in post-production, as recently as a month before the premiere, we still caught a couple of shots in episode seven in which you saw like crew members oh, wow. reflected in the face <laughs> space that we hadn't painted out that we were like, oh crap, now, now we have to do another shot. Uh, so much of like the heart, I guess, soul to be uh, completely on the nose of this episode is this confrontation between Day and Zephyr Halima and this 
ideological argument about whether the genetic dynasty has a soul and what that means, uh, complicated by the fact that, you know, one of the adherents of this religion is Demarzel, a, a robot who believes in a religion about souls. Does she have one? How did these kind of ideas appear like this in the show? Like, what, what what were the things you were talking about in the writer's room as you were kind of exploring something uh, as inconsequential as the human soul? <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that scene in the tent between Halima and Day. Ah, that's great. My ask, it's not a tactic. I only preach what I believe, and I believe the genetic dynasty will be the ruin of us all. Luminous can see the future now? I do not claim to see the future. I only have a sense deep in my soul of what is true and what is wrong. She says, basically, well, if he gets rid of the genetic dynasty, he's getting rid of himself. And Mm -hmm. she's saying, yeah, that's the point, man. You're like, you know, you don't work anymore. And, and, And that's when he realizes that there's no buying her because he comes down there, um, he deigns to come down there. Yeah. And again, he's just been assuming this whole time that she stated this position, but it's a ne- negotiation position. Right, right. You know, that, she that, wants something. There's, yeah, this, yeah, there's yeah. a price. She's somewhere. got an ask. Yeah. So he strolls in there and he's like, come on, just get to yeah. the ask. And then she just comes out and says, like, there's, there isn't an ask. The, a- the ask is you're horrible and you and your clones need to need to die, basically, you know? That was just a, a really exciting. He's never had anyone other than Harry Selden. Yeah, or, or actually, he was a child when right. Harry Selden said this. But other than Harry Selden, no one's ever said that. And, and of course, she invokes Harry Selden in that scene. One of the other things that was interesting about this season is Jared slash Harry Selden is is in the first two episodes a lot. Yeah, and then more in this episode after the surprise reveal of his return in five, but is a character that's talked about all the time. Also, one of the things that we're doing particularly with this season, with the first season, is he's withholding all this information from all these characters. So, and as storytellers, we're doing that deliberately. So we can't kind of go behind the veil too soon. Yeah, I keep thinking that, or I kept thinking rather that, you know, in addition to saying we got rid of end the genetic dynasty, flat out end it, um, invoking the name of Harry Seldon today is, that's a power move. I mean, that that would provoke a reaction alone. Forget the mentioning the genetic dynasty. So saying that name to him. It's the, and it's the reason why they didn't in episode one just assassinate him was because they were all, people were already chattering mm-hmm. about this guy it's like that would show you're afraid of him yeah if you actually did just yeah. kill him you just always wonder given that regime why don't they just do x and um because they have to be careful because they know people are listening to these people and 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 people were listening to harry selden and try as they might to discredit him during that trial um People still talk about Harry Seldon. They still talk about the fact that he predicted the fall of the empire. Uh, Day here witnesses people walking the spiral. What's the what is the spiral, and what does it mean to luminism? The spiral. We talked. I I I said that I like this idea of a pilgrimage. 
Um, a pilgrimage is something that, again, as someone who's a religious now, I find fascinating. Mm-hmm. You know, journeying to Mecca. Um, but there's, you know, lots of religions have pilgrimages, and I was fascinated by the idea of a pilgrimage that many people die in the attempt of, you know, and 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 that I just thought that was fascinating, and I wanted to come up with a challenge for day that was both physically and mentally arduous, mm. and something that was just the you know, the idea that he might have to remove his aura, that he wouldn't have his bodyguards around him, that he would have to physically endure pain because empire doesn't really endure pain. And that that he would also have to do something that was physically arduous and dangerous and 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 literally have to walk amongst the unwashed. Yeah. And so he says that he's going to do this, you know, near the end of this episode and we'll get into the ramifications of that next episode. But but to me um what's exciting about what he says here is that w- now we're sort of re- a bit revealing our our hand is that's the whole point of this storyline. Mm. Getting day out of his comfort zone and challenging him in a way that no one in the genetic dynasty has ever been challenged and challenging him personally and even potentially putting himself in a situation where he might die. Let's go to the Raven where Gail finally gets to have a long-awaited, let's put our cards on the table conversation with a version of Terry Selden. He told me it was your dream to see Terminus. You said you wanted to start the foundation together. Yes. I said it loudly and often, didn't I? So often I started to bore myself. You were performing. I was engineering the narrative. It's a fancy way of saying you lied. Harry is really a diabolical, methodic planner. He has thought so many moves ahead of so many people. Take us through the moves that brought us here. I'm going to do a little digression first. Yes. And, then we'll, and, then, and then I'll answer that. When I was first pitching the show to Apple, I said it's a thousand-year chess game between Harry Seldon and the Empire with all the characters in between acting as the pawns. But I said it's also another way to look at the show is it's this mentor-student relationship Mm -hmm. between Harry and Gail. And so there have been other famous stories that have been versions of this. And so I, I, that relationship, and I bring it up because, because it's, you see some of it at work in this episode is, is, was always something that was at the heart of the show is, is the relationship between Harry and Gail. Yeah. Who, maybe she's smarter than him, but as he points out, but she hasn't had as much experience as he has. Well, he's, playing this chess game, she doesn't understand that she's involved in the chess right. game yet. I mean, she solved the Abraxas conjecture on her own. Right. But on once, on once, fish scale paper. <laughs> yes. But, but once she solved it, Harry then manipulated her mm-hmm. to Tranter and manipulated her in different ways. He was pretty sure that she would sort of uh, back his numbers at the trial and the big reveal in this episode is that he never intended to make it determinus. Right. That at some point on that five-year journey, he was going to die. 
And the reason for that is, and he's quite explicit about it, is that this is when we start to get into the idea of how do you promote this plan? He needed to become more than a man. He needed to become a myth. And that's when we go back to, you know, the speech that he had, you know, in the laundry room that was part of his myth making. It's a lot easier to become a myth if your lifespan is 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 ended, you know, before, you know, yeah. he said, if I, if, if I make it to Terminus, I would have become the crackpot. People would right. have, familiarity breeds contempt. And so he can't make it to the promised land. Right. He's got to die. And he's also got to die by a betrayer, i.e. Raish. And the terrible part is that he casts his foster son what in a raw the role. Deal. Yeah, what it's, a raw it's a deal terrible for <laughs> deal for Raish. But the plan was... Raish was going to do this right. and then get in this cryopod and then hook up with the Raven. And then Raish and this digital version of Harry Selden were going to travel to Helicon, his homeworld, and start the second foundation. And, and now we get into this, all the different ways that Gale has skewed the plan um, unintentionally. Uh, yeah. Because now Gale is in the cryopod Instead of Raish, she's supposed to go to the first foundation and she winds up on the ship with Harry that's supposed to go to the second foundation and everything is just in tatters. And she is rightfully angry at Harry because she's sort of like, why can't you just level with me? Yeah. Why do you have to manipulate? Why can't you trust people? Why do you have to manipulate them? Um, The second foundation... What's its deal in mission identical to the first? How, do the do the first foundation know about this? Who knew about this? And what's the intention here with this, the second foundation? So as Asimov conceived it, there were always going to be two foundations. And the first foundation was going to be ignorant of the second foundation. Um, in a way, they're like the control group. The second foundation was aware of the first foundation and was going to have access to the plan, the prime radiant, could consult the math and see to what extent the math was veering off course or not and could course correct. Second Foundation in the books also have um, telepathic ability. Mm. What Asimov did in the books, though, is, is even though it's briefly mentioned, I believe, in the first story or the second story, um, the Second Foundation is, in, is a group that exists entirely off screen until um, I believe it's the third book. And we, we never meet any of them until the third book. And so there's sort of a, a, a late act reveal. But I knew for our adaptation that we couldn't have the second foundation just exist off screen for three seasons mm-hmm. and then suddenly appear. We needed to be with them. We needed to see the second foundation being formed, which is not something that we see in the books. And so I decided to interject the idea of the second foundation and the formation of the second foundation early on in the season. But that's something that we will be depicting in this show. This is a huge reveal, as is Harry's return to this story. How how much did you let the cast and crew know about what was coming down the the highway 
what I'll say to a lot of my actors is I don't want you to play the future. And right. I mean that literally. Right. Like I don't want you to think about events that are going to happen later on in your story because your character doesn't know about those events. And so I, I don't want it to affect your performance. The only actor that I showed the full Monty to was Jared, which seemed appropriate as playing Harry Seldon yes. because he is playing this chess game where he's withholding information. So the only, I would, I would titrate the scripts and the story points to all of the other actors in the season other than Jared, who read all 10 scripts before we started shooting. The other actors, to their annoyance, would sort of get, <laughs> get the scripts <laughs> kind of episode <laughs> by episode. And and I said, look, his character <laughs> is a is is a his whole character is based on right. I'm I'm withholding right. future information. Like he has to know the you know because because his character at least knows the plan, and that doesn't mean that the plan will unfold exactly as he predicted. But he's at least trying to make it unfold as he predicted. So he has to know that information. You don't need to know that. And and so look, they respected that. But but all the time. I would, um, when we get near the end of the season, um, there's some big reveals. And and those actors did not know they were coming until shortly before we shot them. How, how much did you think about, because I think, you know, the questions about Harry's moral compass, I think are there in the foundation books, but they're they're not text. You know, they're not in, interrogated in the same way. He also, I th- I think he we're also inter- doesn't really appear in the first three yeah. novels beyond like the second story or maybe the third story. But I found myself, it, it's kind of inescapable as you're listening to Harry t- talk to Gail. It's impossible to not question what are what's this guy's real motivation? How much of this is I, I want to save humanity from uh, centuries of darkness, and how much of this is ego? Uh, yes, the you know the the his ego is working in tandem to the benefit of humankind right now. But what if it changes? Like, uh, how much did you think about changing Harry and really in- interrogating these ideas? I mean, I maintain by and large his intentions are good. Yeah, I would agree with that. However. If you're trying to save humanity, yeah. you're going to have to break some eggs. You're going to have to disappoint <laughs> some people. You, you may have to sacrifice entire planets at times, and you, you may have to lie to people. You may have to manipulate people. Yeah. And it's, it's, that's just part of the job. And I realize that the only, the only time I've ever even remotely been in any real form of leadership was, well, A, when I run a crew like this show. Mm-hmm. And, and so- this is a tangent, but it's it's interesting. I remember the first time I ran a show and and uh, a mentor of mine said, can I give you a piece of advice? What? I, I know you want people to like you, but you're trying to be everyone's friend and they don't need a friend, they need a leader. And sometimes you just have to lead and not worry about what people are going to think mm-hmm. about the decisions that you make. What One of the things that I said at the beginning when we were pitching the show is, I hope we get to a point um, later on in the show where for the greater good, 
Harry is forced to sacrifice an entire planet. Mm. I want to. I want to put. I talk a lot with my writers about putting our characters in this crucible, and I want to put Harry and then later Gale in a situation where, for the greater good, they might have to sacrifice someone they love, or even an entire planet, literally an entire planet, like billions of people. You make the decision to allow them to die because it means the rest of the galaxy will live. Um, this episode is so much about characters being vulnerable in ways that are completely new to them. Um, and on Trantor, we have Don sharing his uh, most tightly guarded secret, his, his difference. I put my shoes on in a different order. I point at things with a different crook in my finger. I eat starches before meats instead of the other way around. If they notice the adhesives, they might notice all of it. The thing I loved about this is it's so, it feels like a fairy tale almost within this story. You know, the Prince and the Pauper. There's a million. I mean, deliberately. It, 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 yeah. It, 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 and. Or like a YA novel. Yes. This, it, it on the one hand, it, here's what makes it feel YA to me. And uh, because, you know, youth is about getting swept up in these emotions and, and making these leaps that like if you took five minutes an hour a day to think to think about it and consider it you would not do this of course I'm not going to reveal no he's my he's, deepest he's secret being, to this person he, he, i don't know invite her in uh, yeah, to the no, palace he's being spectacularly naive <laughs> but i mean it's hard not to be swept up in this i think i think in 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 don's defense mm-hmm. he's desperate to talk to someone about this I mean, he's had to, you know, shoulder this secret, you know, since he first realized he was different. And and knowing that if he mentioned it to anyone in the palace, they would potentially just kill him. Yeah. And decant another one. Yeah. So in his defense, um, you can sort of understand why he finally breaks down and sort of spills his heart to this young gardener. I would imagine love and personal connection is a thing that that has been studiously kept at arm's length from anywhere within the sphere of the Cleons, of the emperors. Yeah, they decided, uh, Cleon I decided once he was going to institute this genetic dynasty. Well, first of all, I, um, I can't remember whether we were explicit or not in season one, but the... um, Data on dusk are sterile. Their their sperm's inactive. And and they're not allowed to have ongoing relationships because an heir is a threat to the genetic dynasty. And Clan the First was aware of the fact that not only would his clones have sexual urges and desires, but they would want to unburden themselves. Yeah. And so they came up with this incredibly perverse system, Clan the First, where they could pick these concubines and Empire can talk trash about his other clones, talk trash about Empire, w- w- reveal whatever secrets they want. And then at the end of that night, that concubine's memories are erased. And so um, it's a really weird system uh, that Don's introduced to, and he, he's uncomfortable with it. And he, um, 
he just wants to have a, quote, normal relationship where the person he sleeps with's memories aren't erased the next morning. And with that, we will now go to our uh, lightning round game, Building the Foundation. Lightspeed round questions on all the little details in the show, all these little questions that have arisen. There's a lot of them in this one. Are you ready? I, I hope so. <laughs> Something to build upon. You'll be allowed to build your foundation. foundation. Is that the best if and when the Invictus jumps into the center of Trantor, what would happen? It would be like a little, uh, the, the planet would implode. It would be like a little black hole oh, opened wow. up in the core of Trantor. If Dawn or another member of the genetic dynasty passes away before their time, one, has that ever happened? And then two... It has happened, yes. It, two, they would be immediately replaced by whoever yeah. you have in the in the vat? Yeah, immediately replaced with these guys. You know, they've got these little VR nodes or whatnot where they're, they're sort of up to speed and they're decanted and the new one steps in. What's the fidelity on uploading yourself into into the cloud or into some sort of computer storage? Like, man, my recall is better ever since I've been uploaded into this computer. Things like that. Like, is that's a, that's it's interesting because in in the case of of Harry, as he explains in this episode, the upload process something went wrong, and so in his case, he's been in, in this horrible state of purgatory for thirty years. Like getting stabbed yep. and dying over and over and over again. And so um, I would say that that, that Harry, the fidelity isn't one-to-one and that that Harry has been damaged um, as the equivalent of brain damage, even though he's digital. So, and we'll have to see where that, where that goes. Uh, the Invictus, uh, there's some gravity outside of it, which I enjoyed because of the size of it. Did you through your uh, consultants discuss like what level of gravity there would be a- around the Invictus? We did. And I said that they have the ability to, on these ships and on the Invictus, generate our artificial gravity. That being said, um, with an infinite amount of money, I mean, they, they <laughs> you know, we, we would have, uh, they were meant to have sort of, mag boots and whatnot as well. And and we got a little wishy-washy with that. Uh, and then finally, what is in the vault? So, you know how when you do your laundry, yep. the, there's like a missing sock and Always. no one knows where it goes? So all of the missing socks from everyone's laundry going back to the beginning of time, they're, they, they wind up in the vault. <laughs> Well, uh, David, thank you for uh, joining us. And thanks for all of you for listening to Foundation, the official podcast. Be sure to follow on Apple Podcasts to get the next episode in your feed. And watch Foundation on Apple TV Plus where available. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Max Linsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Barry Finkel. Our senior managing producer is Gabrielle Lewis. Our producers are Ahmed Ali Akbar and Jonathan Shiflett. Darby Maloney is our senior editor. Our composer is Carly Bond. And I am Jason Concepcion. Thank you all for listening. Thank you.